Welcome to the Neo Edge. I'm your host, Brooke Hart. Here's where we talk about everything with innovation, emerging technologies, and the concepts that are shaping our future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Neo Edge, where we focus on everything from the innovative that is shaping our future. We would like to welcome our guest today, Lynn Yuff, to the show. Lynn began his journey with studies in molecular biology and went into combat casualties, moving his career into the best approaches for resuscitation. He is a co-founder and CEO of the company, EPR Technologies, an innovative way of using resuscitation. Thanks for joining us, Lynn. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My pleasure. Um, So give us a little bit of background about where you started and how you ended up in EPR Technologies. Right. I I grew up in Baltimore and attended Johns Hopkins University undergraduate, majoring in biophysics. And then I went to the University of Maryland Medical School. And for postgraduate training uh, after medical school, I went to Columbia University and did a residency in pathology. And during that time, I encouraged people to get involved in research. So I was doing uh, some research projects at was then called the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology. It was on the campus of, uh, of uh, Huffman La Roche, the pharmaceutical firm. I think, you know, in, in, uh, uh, it, it's still there as a building, but I think it, it, it was, it's been incorporated into the company. It was sort of an independent uh, company foundation when I was there. And uh, so I did, uh, uh, I did research there and at Columbia University uh, during my uh, postgraduate training. I was there for six years and I had some obligated service, military service uh, that allowed me to finish all my training at the end of the Vietnam War. And uh, even though the Vietnam War came to an end, I had to you know, uh, meet my obligation and spend time in the military. And I, and I had signed up uh, for the Navy. So after Columbia, I asked where I could do research in the Navy, and they uh, sent me to the Naval Redis, uh, the Navy Medical Research Institute in Bethesda, across from NIH, which is on the campus now of the Walter Reed National uh, Military Medical Center, where the big hospital is there. Uh, and uh, you know, years and years ago, the Naval Medical Research Institute was there. It was all the hospital was separate from Walter Reed. And so I got involved in various aspects of combat casualty care research. In those early days, they sort of let you do what you want, septic shock, blood research, wound research. So I I did various things there. And, uh, you know, they gave you money, let you do what you want. So I continued uh, uh, to stay and, uh, and was there for a number of years. And eventually they asked me if I would uh, spend some time at the Pentagon, which I did. They have, you know, sort of an administrative medical program uh, group there. I was there about two years. Uh, I spent time at uh, the Office of Naval Research and the Office of the Naval Surgeon General uh, down at 23rd and C in DC. But eventually I I went back to the lab to continue doing research after a few administrative years. Then they asked me to uh, uh, head up combat casualty care research program. And I had uh, ultimately, you know, tens of millions of dollars to spend on different combat casualty care uh, programs. 
at Navy laboratories around the country and also at different universities or contract companies that were doing what we were interested in doing. And uh, obviously the military and combat casualty care because of the number of people killed in action, there was an interest in what could be done to save those casualties who were normally, who were uh, unfortunately killed in action. And, um, you know, in Vietnam, the data from Vietnam, 80% of those people killed in action, 80% died from massive exsanguination, which is massive bleeding. No time to, uh, you know, really do any definitive surgery. You could put tourniquets on, but if they had abdominal bleeding, that was impossible, of course. And they had abdominal bleeding, uh, torso bleeding, extremity bleeding, and very quickly uh, they would bleed to death. No time for CPR or surgery. So the combat casualty care concern was, well, what could be done to save those lives? And at a meeting, I uh, met Dr. Peter Saffer. And Dr. Peter Saffer at the time was at the University of Pittsburgh. He was a professor emeritus. Uh, and when he became professor emeritus a number of years before I met him, they renamed the International Center for Resuscitation Research, the Saffer Center for Resuscitation Research. Now, uh, Dr. Saffer's uh, important claim to fame, and he was nominated for the Nobel Prize several times. He never won because his research was uh, sort of wasn't molecularly or genetically oriented. But he is considered uh, the father of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. If you've ever learned to do CPR, uh, if you've ever learned mouth to mouth, if you've ever uh, learned about chest compressions, He's responsible for integrating all that. He, by himself, and one associate named James Elan, they developed mouth-to-mouth. If you can recall before that, uh, I'm old enough to recall it, but you're not, that people would raise their arms in, in, you know, you would have your arms raised and side maneuvers on your side to attempt to expand the lungs. None of that worked. Dr. Saffer developed mouth-to-mouth, where oxygen that are still in your lungs when you exhale can be delivered to the uh, patient whose heart had stopped. Um, and he integrated that with the uh, early techniques in chest compressions and made CPR a very effective life-saving procedure. He wrote the first book called The ABCs of Emergency Medicine, which was airway, breathing, circulation um, through chest compressions. And he popularized CPR over the next uh, number of years in several important ways. I, I should back up a little and say when he developed uh, an integrated mouth-to-mouth -mouth with CPR, um, he was at Johns Hopkins at the time. And he was such a futurist thinker that he realized the importance of having an independent department in anesthesia. He was an anesthesiologist by training. But in the late uh, uh, 50s, early or late 50s, anesthesiologists didn't have independent departments. They worked in the Department of Surgery. And he asked the Department of Surgery, whoever was chairman at the time, whether he could start an independent department. And they said no. But he had friends at the University of Pittsburgh at the medical center there. And they said yes. And so after he developed uh, uh, CPR, he went to Pittsburgh and really started the first independent department of anesthesiology. He was the first uh, uh, anesthesiologist in the department and 
you know, when he retired, they must have had about 200 anesthesiologists covering all of the uh, UPMC hospital system. But um, when he got to Pittsburgh, you know, he was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pushing uh, uh, globalization of CPR to save lives. And there were in those early days, in the late 50s, early 60s, 60s in order to do CPR, you know, because there wasn't the concept of bystanders, you needed trained paramedics to do it. Ambulance drivers were the only, you know, people, if they called the police or an ambulance service to be picked up, if, if they were in cardiac arrest, the ambulance drivers didn't know what to do. They just rushed into a hospital. So CPR wasn't done. So Dr. Saffer's next big uh, innovation was he trained the first paramedics in the world. And in those days in um, Pittsburgh, ambulance drivers, which were all white, all Caucasian, they wouldn't go into black neighborhoods. This was the late 50s, early 60s. So he took a, a group of unemployed African-Americans, established what was called Freedom House, and he trained them to be paramedics. And he designed the ambulance that they used. They knew how to do CPR. And this was even before 911 was a national uh, call number. So in those early days, uh, they would, uh, the police, if the police were called because of some emergency, Freedom House, uh, paramedics were plugged in. So the police dispatcher would say, well, this is, sounds like a medical event. So they would dispatch Freedom House paramedics. And a few years after they got started, 911 uh, became the call number to uh, contact uh, uh, paramedics. And his early uh, um, uh, uh, paramedic trainees, you know, they went on to train hundreds of paramedics in other cities. They become they became chiefs of, uh, of emergency medical services in different cities throughout the country. And as a matter of fact, uh, a week ago, I was at uh, a symposium and lecture dedicated to Dr. Saffer that was started, you know, when he was still alive. He died in 2003. But at that symposium, they had two of the original paramedics. They must have been in their early 80s. Uh, uh, to talk about what it was like in the early days. So I got to meet two of those early paramedics. In those early days, uh, Dr. Saffer, who oversaw all of this, his key protege who was available 24-7 to assist those paramedics on a call or whatever was necessary was Nancy Caroline. And after she finished her training with Dr. Saffer, she went to Israel. And in Israel, uh, she has, is deceased now as well, uh, in Israel, uh, she is known as the mother of paramedics. So it's an interesting Dr. Saffer, Nancy Caroline, paramedic uh, uh, CPR um, history. And uh, I put a lot of this history up on the uh, our uh, campaign page at uh, startengine.com slash EPR hyphen technologies. If people are interested in seeing early videos of Dr. Saffer doing the first CPR on on his associates in the laboratory in those days, you know, before all of the strict rules about volunteers in medical experiments, he would have volunteers in the lab. They worked in the labs. They were other physicians and he would paralyze their respiratory muscles so they could no longer breathe. And he would do mouth to mouth uh, a resuscitation on them. He would keep them alive 
until they counteracted the paralytic drugs that they were given. And on some occasion, these people would remain in a paralytic state and he would do mouth to mouth for up to three hours. It, it was amazing that they had such confidence in Dr. Saffer. That wouldn't happen today. So uh, Dr. Saffer, uh, and, and please interrupt me if necessary. When I met Dr. Saffer at that meeting about how to keep combat casualty care, uh, combat victims from dying quickly on the battlefield, he said to me, we should do rapid profound hypothermia. He said, if you cool the body down, the vital organs down fast enough, they won't need oxygen for a period of time and you can get them to the surgeon, uh, do repairs, and then you resuscitate them as you rewarm them. So rapid profound hypothermia, uh, because I controlled money at the time and, and also had good dealings with the army program managers, we started funding Dr. Saffer to do animal studies in rapid, profound hypothermia. In those early days, he liked calling it suspended animation or temporary suspended animation because you're cooled down, you appear dead, you know, no brain waves, no heartbeat, no respirations, even though they're cellular life. Uh, it's not permanent suspended animation like you might see in 2001, A Space Odyssey, or other science fiction films, because it's only, you know, you can only do that for so many hours. Uh, so typically in the large animals like pigs, experimentally would do it for three hours under anesthesia. You know, there was surgical trauma performed. The animals, of course, never suffered. Uh, and they were cooled down. Uh, uh, first, they, they went into a cardiac arrest because they would bleed the animals. Uh, and then they go into cardiac arrest to simulate a combat casualty, and then they would uh, um, cool them down in an attempt to uh, uh, resuscitate them. Uh, after profound hypothermia, they'd rewarm them, put them on bypass, resuscitate them. And those experiments were very, very successful in large animals. And the animals, you could train pigs ahead of time to, uh, you know, do uh, uh, some things. And they would retain all of that and autopsy examinations. The brains look good. Vital organs look good. So ultimately, after many years, the FDA was convinced uh, that a human clinical trial uh, could be done. And, and that took place after Dr. Saffer uh, passed away. And all of his protégés and, and people like me who had worked with him, we've continued to be dedicated to the idea of rapid, profound hypothermia, which we instead of using rapid profound hypothermia or temporary suspended animation, we introduced the Saffer Center, introduced the term emergency preservation and resuscitation, EPR. So CPR doesn't work, EPR. Try to make it as catchy and memorable as possible. But it's really emergency preservation through rapid profound hypothermia and the resuscitation is more correctly delayed resuscitation where you give back the blood, rewarm the patient, and then you get their heart started. So the clinical trial with a few patients started at uh, Maryland Shock Trauma in Baltimore, which is a premier trauma center uh, that is really the model for many, many other trauma centers. It's run by Dr. Tom Scalia, uh, who's a, uh, a strong advocate of EPR, Rapid Profound Hypothermia to save lives, and they see a lot of trauma uh, at Maryland Shock Trauma, as all 
trauma centers do uh, either automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents, uh, and unfortunately, uh, gunshot wounds, and uh, also sudden cardiac arrest, uh, as occurs uh, very, very frequently, much more frequently than trauma, of course. And even though our clinical trial is in exsanguinating, bleeding trauma victims, EPR hopefully one day, in my opinion, in the opinion of the company, will also be used in sudden cardiac arrest, where you cannot immediately resuscitate the patient with uh, CPR. And so a clinical trial got started. And after like the first one, when someone was put in suspended animation and resuscitated, they're severely injured. I don't want to say that they, you know, left the hospital. Many Patients who are successfully uh, resuscitated through CPR, they don't leave the hospital because of other complications. We do the worst trauma victims. But it was plastered all over the news. You may not recall it. And uh, that someone put in suspended animation, rapid profound hypothermia. And of, of course, early on in a clinical trial, the FDA and the clinicians, they hate that kind of publicity until something is completed. So we try to keep a tight lid on things. When COVID got started, because we used a lot of blood and, and critical patients uh, in, um, in respiratory arrest uh, or, or or, uh, or insufficiency in COVID that are put on ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, sort of an artificial lung, that takes blood too. So they had so many COVID patients that they put our uh, uh, clinical trial uh, for EPR on pause. And because we're sort of in another wave now, um, still people are dying, though it's less than before, we're, our clinical trial is on hold Still, but we'll probably get started soon. We, we also have the clinical trial is being paid for by the Army. So there's also sufficient money to get started at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, but that's on hold too until after the, the uh, COVID, which we hope will end soon. So in one sense, EPR has, has, a, has a, in the opinion of myself and the other advocates for this field, we have a very strong answer to unsuccessful CPR originally developed by Dr. Saffer. Just to say a little bit about the clinical trial, you know, um, when uh, someone is bleeding and they go into cardiac arrest at the trauma center when they get there, they use standard CPR, you know, mouth to mouth. Maybe they use an Ambu bag or they intubate the patient to make it easier so that a clinician doesn't have to do mouth to mouth all the time, but they're doing chest compressions and they're breathing for the patient. And they may try to defibrillate, obviously, the, the left side, the heart. Um, and uh, they may do that for 30, 40 minutes, attempting to save life. Sometimes they're successful, depending on how much blood is lost, uh, what they can do uh, uh, to get that patient to the point where they can have successful CPR. But if it looks like they're failing, usually at a trauma center, they'll do a left thoracotomy, which means they open the chest over the heart and the surgeon uh, will stick in a gloved hand and massage, manually massage the left ventricle to shunt as much blood to the brain as possible. At the same time, they'll clamp the descending aorta to prevent the blood leaving the, the squeezed heart from going anywhere except to the brain. The brain is the, is the organ 
that is in most need of uh, oxygen. And then they tried defibrillation again. If that doesn't work, uh, then if the team that's doing that is the team that has trained to do EPR, if in one sense, if you're unfortunate to be a dying trauma victim who's not responding to CPR, but you're lucky enough to have the trained EPR team doing that, they will rapidly stick a large diameter, like the size of your finger catheter, into the arch of the aorta, and they will rapidly infuse ice-cold saline. The FDA in the clinical trial, they want to show that, that rapid, profound hypothermia works. They don't want us to add additives or other neuroprotective agents. They want to show that the basic concept works. And so the patient is rapidly cooled down to 5 to 15 degrees centigrade, let's say 10 degrees centigrade, which is about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, 10, uh, 10 degrees Celsius or centigrade is the same. And at that low temperature, you don't need to breathe for the patient anymore. You can stop cardiac massage, so there's no heartbeat, there's no respirations. If you do an EEG, there's no brain waves. You sort of appear dead, but you're cold. You're, you know, 10 degrees Celsius. But there's cellular life. You know, when someone's heart starts, and if they're not resuscitated, your brain isn't dead that instant. It may take, you know, four to seven minutes. So during the cool down, you've been getting oxygen. Then during the cool down, you know, they're still trying to deliver oxygen. Once you reach target temperature, they don't have to do that anymore. They take you next door at Maryland Shock Trauma, you know, into the surgical suite is right next to the trauma suite. And then they uh, will do surgery. They'll open your abdomen as necessary, stop bleeding, uh, even though now you're not bleeding because we flushed all the blood out with uh, saline. They, they've, they, they've released that that descending aorta clamp, which I mentioned before, to shunt blood to the brain, now they've cooled your whole body. So you're filled with cold saline. The surgeons uh, do whatever reparative surgery is necessary to the point, uh, you know, they can do that in three hours usually. It's maybe not the final surgical step, but it's enough to close up everything that's bleeding and then put you on cardiopulmonary bypass they give you blood back. You've been typed and cross-matched, or they give O negative. And then they, uh, on cardiopulmonary bypass, you know, there's a drain in the vein. So they start to drain out the saline, and they're giving you back blood, and that circuit is going. At the same time, they rewarm you to about 33 degrees, 34 degrees Celsius. And at that point, your heart may spontaneously start. If not, they'll defibrillate you again to get your heart started. Normothermic temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. A few degrees below that is called mild hypothermia. It's very different from rapid, profound hypothermia. Yes, they're both fall under hypothermia, ther uh, therapeutic hypothermia, but different uses, different techniques, different ways of administering it. So in a once we get the patient back to mild hypothermia, keeping them mildly cool by two or three degrees helps the healing and the brain protected. And perhaps people have heard of mild hypothermia. It's quite a bit different, as I said, from profound. But mild hypothermia is used routinely 
at major medical centers, perhaps there are some small hospitals where it's not ruled initially, used initially routinely until they get you to a bigger center. If someone has a heart attack, but they're resuscitated, or they didn't need to be resuscitated because their heart really didn't stop, but they're unconscious, if they remain unconscious after a heart attack or after being resuscitated with CPR, they're put on mild hypothermia. And that's done with usually cooling body wraps. They can't go below 33 because they'll stop your heart from beating at a lower temperature. And that's mild hypothermia, you know, in a patient who's been resuscitated with CPR or didn't need CPR. Very different than profound. I'd like to also mention that what is the evidence that rapid profound hypothermia at that cold state for three hours that you can be resuscitated? You know, don't think about the clinical trial for a moment. Uh, healthy skiers, there have been a number of reported cases in the literature that they're covered in an avalanche. These are healthy people. They're not traumatized. They're not, you know, uh, uh, they're not heart attack uh, victims. They're covered in an avalanche. And uh, they're cooled down fast enough. Perhaps there was enough pocket of oxygen that they could get some oxygen delivery during the cool down. But they get cooled to a point, their heart stops, they're not breathing. And hopefully their brain is protected. The rescuers find them in the avalanche, uh, you know, after, and it's been less than three hours, let's say. Those otherwise healthy individuals, they're rewarmed. Maybe they're placed in a in a in a bath that is very warm water, uh, uh, and uh, they can give them warm fluids, other techniques, body wraps that are warm. And lo and behold, some of those people that got cold in the right conditions, they're resuscitated. They can get their heart started, even though they were in profound hypothermia. They get their heart started, and they're normal afterwards. They're living normal lives. Similar things have happened with children, primarily, who have fallen, you know, like through a fishing hole in the middle of winter in a great lake. They cool down so fast because the the volume to surface area is such that those children, they virtually are in profound hypothermia by the time they hit bottom of the lake, you know, and then the divers come and, you know, maybe it'll takes them, who knows, 30 minutes or an hour to find those kids. They bring them back up to the surface. They rewarm them and they get them resuscitated. So profound hypothermia, let's say in the right circumstances, is not detrimental to uh, having a normal life if they find you soon enough and rewarm you. The difference, what EPR is doing, we're not doing it in healthy individuals or healthy children. Well, we're not doing it in children at all uh, yet, but uh, we're doing it in trauma victims. So it's quite a bit different. But profound hypothermia in and of itself is not detrimental to uh, being resuscitated once you're rewarmed. Also, I should say that in uh, elective critical neurovascular surgery, sometimes they'll put you in deep hypothermia. You know, it's mild, deep, profound. Okay. So a deep is maybe 18 
to 20 degrees uh, um, Celsius. And at that lower temperature, you're on cardiopulmonary bypass because they're going to do neurovascular surgery where they need to drop your blood pressure and get better control. Um, they cool you down because they don't, they want to protect the brain as much as possible. And a cooler temperature does that. So uh, that's sort of also indicating that cold temperatures aren't detrimental to a, a normal life. We're going a lot lower than that, but still there's evidence that you can uh, have delayed resuscitation. And the complexity of your injuries really, I think, govern whether you're able to fully recover or not. You know, uh, uh, as been in the news, unfortunately, many of these gunshot victims, they get to the hospital and they start, you know, treating them and, uh, and you know, and they never go into cardiac arrest. Or if, if they did go into cardiac arrest, they're resuscitated. And days later, they die of their injuries. So you say, well, what went wrong in those days in between? I won't get into all the medical and surgical complications that occur. Obviously, those teams are doing the best they can for the patient, uh, but they succumb. And the same could happen after EPR resuscitations. The same can happen after CPR resuscitation. So you, you never know. There's so much depending on the particular circumstances. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to save every life, your own life or the life of a loved one. That's why CPR was introduced by Dr. Saffer. That's why paramedics were started. That's why bystander CPR is a big thing. Uh, uh, people have probably heard about bystander CPR. Everyone, everybody who's capable of doing CPR should go to their local Red Cross and learn and get certified uh, to do bystander CPR and learn how to use a defibrillator. In, um, in many schools, I know in Scandinavia particularly, they expose elementary school students. And I think in many schools in the US, they do the same. They expose elementary school students to the concept of CPR. And they have these little mini mannequins for them to practice mouth to mouth and chest compressions. Obviously, no one expects them to do CPR until they're, uh, you know, uh, uh, 18 or 17, 18, 19, where they can become certified. But children, they go back to their parents and they tell them what they did in school today. And perhaps they encourage their uh, parents to learn CPR. So that's broadening out in the U.S. And it's very important to save lives. Uh, you know, the... Uh, People are amazed at how many people, uh, uh, the most recent statistics, and, and let's go back just before COVID, because COVID has interfered with, um, I mean, in one sense, it's good, it's interfered with a lot of driving. It's reduced the number of, of at least for a while, automobile accidents and trauma victims. Uh, and I guess, unfortunately, there's been shootings recently. But in general, across the United States, there are about 550, give or take 50, trauma deaths, meaning automobile accidents, motorcycle, industrial accidents, falls, gunshot, you know, stabbings, whatever comes under, you know, the category of uh, trauma injuries. There are 500 to 550 of those a day in the United States. Okay, and if they can be resuscitated, um, if CPR can be done, you know, many of them don't even get to the point for CPR. 
even if they get CPR, only 5% of those that get CPR survive. The terrible statistics. For sudden cardiac arrest, whether it's an arrhythmia or coronary artery disease, whatever the reason, you go into cardiac arrest, you get CPR, may or may not work, right? Those are about 1,500 a day in the United States. So you have about 2,000 people a day, let's say, that theoretically could benefit from CPR. Or if CPR fails, theoretically, they could then benefit from EPR. You know, of all those sudden cardiac arrest victims, about um, uh, uh, um, more than half of them uh, occur outside of hospitals. And uh, maybe only 15 at most, depending on which study you look at, 15 to 20% or fewer than 15 uh, are recovered through CPR because people, you know, they die at home at night or whatever. Um, uh, um, heart attacks also occur in hospital settings. So if you're going to have a heart attack, it's probably best to have it in a hospital. And uh, because there, your chances of, uh, of being resuscitated are up to 40% at the medical centers because the team is right there. They know exactly what to do. You're not initially depending on a bystander and waiting for the paramedics to arrive. Time is of the essence in CPR and EPR, of course. You need good mouth-to-mouth. Uh, -mouth. You need good chest compressions as soon as a heart attack occurs. Uh, that's the most important thing. Call for paramedics. Begin CPR. Um, that's the lesson. So, um, you know, we started a crowdfunding campaign at Start Engine slash EPR hyphen technologies. Everything is on the site. You know, all of the information, all of the risks as the uh, Security and Exchange Commission requires uh, to be on these sites. So everyone can, uh, can go to the site and have a look uh, and see what you think. Um, and of course, from our website, which is epr-technologies.com or just epr-technology.com, we have both plural and, uh, and uh, singular uh, website, takes you to the way website. You know, there's information there too about EPR, background information, how to contact me, investment uh, information, if anyone is interested. So, you know, this is ongoing. Once our crowdfunding campaign is over, it's not over. You know, I think what we're doing now with podcasts um, is getting some high value uh, investors, as they say, and some organizations interested. You know, I think EPR is a little bit difficult to understand the procedure, you know, without a lengthy explanation as I've given. Uh, so sometimes people say, I can pack five minutes of information into an hour with no problem. Um, but uh, you just have to read about EPR. There's an abundance of medical literature. If you type EPR into Google, you'll find a lot of stuff. If you type Peter Saffer, you'll find a lot of stuff. He's in Wikipedia, of course. And uh, if you type in Freedom House, uh, or if you type in uh, 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 Freedom House, Dr. Saffer, or if you type in EPR Technologies into uh, into YouTube, there are also a lot of things. So uh, I encourage people to do that. Take a look at uh, 
at what we've been doing and uh, whether we're successful, uh, you know, in the next uh, month, two months, six months, a year. You know, sometimes you don't know exactly what the FDA, when they look at a completed clinical trial, they may say, good, great, you're good to go. Let's do this at all the trauma centers in America. Or they may say, let's do another uh, handful of patients with this uh, particular uh, uh, variation. Uh, um, it's hard to predict until they look at uh, all of the data once that's submitted to the FDA, once we complete the ongoing trial. So, you know, EPR, in my opinion, in the opinion of the people who work with me, uh, who are really trauma experts in the U.S., I mean, major trauma surgeons, they see that this is the next logical step in saving a life, in attempting to save a life after CPR. You know, in, in one sense, in my opinion, it's inevitable. You know, uh, CPR was inevitable once they discovered that you could do a chest compression. And once they got respirations worked out by Dr. Saffer showing that mouth to mouth worked, it was inevitable that paramedics would do this. It was inevitable that bystanders would do it once, uh, once defibrillators became, you know, as simple as they could be. Uh, I mean, you know, see one, do one is, is the idea of a defibrillator. That's why everyone needs to go to the Red Cross. So, I'm sorry I've not given you the opportunity to answer a question. <laughs> to ask a question so this I can answer it. I'm sorry I'm getting ahead. No, this was very, very insightful. Lots of really good information. So I encourage everybody to look at EPR-technology and to get in touch with you to learn about what you're doing and to push forward the medical care that can be absolutely. Useful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for the opportunity. And I best wishes uh, uh, to all of the viewers, particularly while COVID is still going on. I yeah. can plug that. I've had two shots plus two boosters, and hopefully uh, in the fall, I'll get a uh, fifth shot. I've also been a volunteer vaccinator, uh, vaccinated a number of hundreds uh, or so uh, uh, from five-year-olds up to the oldest person I vaccinated was 98. Wow. So uh, everyone should get their vaccines uh, <laughs> Very good. Uh, done. Very so good. Take care. Bye again. Thank you. Good luck with everything. And thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Immensely. Likewise. Likewise. Have a good day now, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We'll catch you next time at the Neo Edge.